Hey, good morning. Welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Westbridge, and it's awesome to have you with us. I want to say hello to everybody who's joining us on our online campus. Thanks for participating through that venue. And a big shout out to our Big Lake microsite, who is uh, joining us all together in one house and participating that way. So, so cool that we have all these different options. Hey, I also want to just say this before we jump into, I know that uh, the room is starting to fill up. And uh, so... uh, Number one, I'm going to ask you for some grace as we continue to see a lot of new faces. I love that. That's awesome. We want that. Uh, But in the meantime, I want you to know we're aware of that. So we're constantly trying to figure out how do we add more chairs in here? uh, How do we direct traffic to make sure that we're continuing to accommodate each other? Uh, But in that process, uh, just ask you for grace as we continue to do our part in doing everything we can to make sure that we can uh, accommodate everybody that's coming and wants to come. And as we fill up these services, if we have to add more services, we'll do that. We'll do whatever it takes to accommodate people. So uh, keep bringing your friends, keep inviting, and we'll keep trying our best to make room. But in that process, sometimes there's some tension, so give us some grace in that. All right, uh, we're jumping into a series today called This Beautiful Mess. And the reason for this series is because uh, so much of what we experience as human beings is both beautiful and messy, and it all has to do with people. It has to do with relationships, right? And, and so much of what we felt even in the last 18 months, a lot of it has been things where it brings the best out of us, and a lot of it has been things that has brought out the worst out of us. A lot of it is beautiful, a lot of it's messy, but all of it, the, the most beautiful parts of our lives, the parts that we tend to lean into and appreciate and value are our relationships. And consequently, some of the craziest, most chaotic, and messiest parts of our lives are also relationships with people. And all of us have people in our lives to varying degrees, and all of us have people in our lives in different spheres of influence and in different arenas, right? And uh, for some of you, you have a roommate, you have a neighbor, maybe you have a friend, uh, you have uh, people that you work with, you have an employer or employees, you have someone who you share a cubicle with, uh, you have someone that you work with uh, who's just a fellow employee, a co-worker, uh, some of you, not only that, outside of those spheres, uh, maybe you have a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And then you have uh, kids, or you have stepkids, or you have adopted kids, or foster kids, or grandkids. And then you have parents, and you have grandparents, and you have adopted parents, or foster parents. Uh, You have uh, all these different relationships going on in your life. And then outside of all that, you have your extended family in all of its various forms, and all of the things that go on with all of that. And then there's everybody else. Who, who you don't necessarily know, but you interact with on some level. The person who's working behind the, the counter at the hardware store and the person in front of you in the drive-thru and the, the guy driving that Hummer that just is insisting that he merge into your lane and uh, you know the lady who's got 27 items in the express lane at the grocery store and she's paying with an out-of-state check. All of these people you interact with on some level, right? And everybody else then on the other end of your social media. You've got all of those people, all of the people who uh, give you a, a double click on your Instagram and heart what you said and uh, give you a love or an angry face and a comment, all the comments that go around on Facebook and social media and Twitter. And, and whether you like it or not, you interact with and I interact with a vast number of people on a daily basis. And apparently it doesn't always go very well. Apparently, there's some tension around relationships. Apparently, uh, we, sometimes we love our interactions with people, and sometimes we hate our interactions with people. And if you just look at the sheer amount of money that is spent every single year on everything from marriage books to dating apps to parenting resources to uh, 
conflict resolution management to workplace culture secrets, it is staggering. We spend millions and millions every single year on trying to figure out how do we navigate these different arenas of our lives, specifically the people that we deal with in these different arenas. And chances are, this last season has made your relationships with other people even more difficult. Chances are you found yourself uh, isolated from some people while simultaneously being clumped together with some others in the last 18 months. And uh, the result of that over this last year, over the last really 18 months, has been uh, we've thrown all kinds of pressure onto our relationships. During the last year of uh, pandemic slash presidential race slash uh, social justice issues, slash vaccines, slash masks, slash add whatever you want to, whatever's going on in your world, on top of all of that. And it feels like the world has really lost our minds a little bit. In terms of, uh, you find yourself maybe at odds with some people, and for some of you, maybe flat out in conflict with some people. It's caused a lot of tension in our relationships, and this may surprise you, but interacting with others in a, in a good way, in a positive way, is actually what the church is supposed to be famous for. It's what the church is supposed to specialize in. And, and that's not just like my idea of like, hey, I think that would make a good church. This is, this is what Jesus, its founder, told us we were supposed to do. So Jesus, just before he was arrested, when he was here on earth and he's, he's hanging out with his disciples, and just before he's arrested, he's giving them sort of final instructions. And one of the things that he says to them is, as I have loved you, you should love each other. Like, I don't want you to, there's this thing called the golden rule, and it's like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And Jesus is like, yeah, we're done with that. This one's the platinum rule. As I have loved you, I want you to love others. And then he says this. There's this fascinating statement right after. He says, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples, is how you treat each other. If you love people the way that I've loved you, then the world's going to take notice of that, and they're going to go, man, those are, those are like Jesus people. Those, are, those people, there's something different about them. They love different. They love differently than the other people that I come into contact with, and the fact is, Jesus said this, that uh, this is how people are going to know, and it couldn't be more clear. Uh, this is what the church is supposed to be famous for. This is how you're supposed to know that there's a local church in our community is because there's a group of people who follow Jesus who are so good at loving other people. And they're so good at loving other people that even when they disagree with other people, and especially when they disagree with other people, that they still love well. That you go, man, we don't see eye to eye on everything, but in spite of that, they seem to really treat me well. They seem to really value me as a human being. They seem to really value me as a person. It feels like I matter to them. It feels like my story matters to them. And the fact is, you may not even be aware of this, but that is actually what initially drew followers of Jesus in the first place. That's what, that's what drew people in the first century and living in the Roman Empire to this thing called Christianity to begin with, was that there were people who followed Jesus who just treated others so well. And it wasn't because they all believed the same thing. It was because somewhere along the way, they were just treated so well. And so you had people who were like, I'm not sure about this Jesus thing, but you guys follow Jesus and you treat people so well. I want to learn more. And if you're not a Christian or you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're even thinking like, do my Christian friends know that Jesus said that? <laughs> like... 
Because some of my Christian friends, I don't think they've heard this. You're supposed to love well, and that's how people will know you're my followers. Do the Christians on Twitter, have they seen this? Like, I'm not so sure they've seen this, right? And, and I totally understand your hesitation because uh, what centuries of church has taught us is that this Jesus distinctive of loving others really well is something that's really easy to lose sight of. It's really easy for us to let go of that. In fact, sometimes it's easier for us to make church more about our services and our theology than it is about loving others well. Sometimes it's a lot easier to just talk about the Bible and nod and go, man, that was good, and go home and not actually do something with it and not actually apply it, particularly in the arena of loving other people. And this last season that we've been in, this last 18 months, that did not help us. Our love one another well muscles have atrophied in the last 18 months. We, we have not been exercising those muscles very well. We spent the last season practicing all kinds of ways to not love each other well. And if you're anything like me, it was a particularly difficult season to love one another well. Because it's a lot easier to be mean. It's a lot easier to be selfish. It's a lot easier to be insensitive. And so this series, what we're in, this beautiful mess, is a callback to the basics of loving each other well. It's a callback to the basics, and I think if we'll do over the next three weeks, today, next week, and the 26th, and we're going to wrap up that night with a worship night and baptisms, these three weeks, I'm going to ask you to lean in for these three weeks, because I think if we will talk about these three practices, there's three practices over these weeks that if you will start, or maybe even resume, or possibly accelerate these three practices, here's what I think could happen. I think that our relationships will be a lot more beautiful and a lot less messy. I think that we could make a difference. And this isn't just for followers of Jesus. If, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're like, you know, I'm not sure where I stand on this whole Jesus thing, we're glad that you're here. We started this for people to find Jesus and to follow Jesus, to discover who Jesus is and how he operates and what he's all about and hopefully make an impact in your life. But even if you're not there, if you will put these practices into play in your life, in the different arenas of your life, it's going to make your marriage better. It's going to make your parenting better. It's going to make your workplace better, more productive, more friendly. It's going to make your neighborhood a nicer place to live. And it's going to make our community a lot more united if we would all just put these into practice. And for followers of Jesus, particularly, this is extremely important because it's what we're supposed to be known for. It's what Jesus said we're supposed to be famous for. And if we're not careful, we're in danger of losing our opportunity to make Jesus known for what he wants to be known for. And so this command to love others like Jesus should impact the words that we speak to each other. It should impact the conflicts that we have with each other. And it should impact the, the narratives that we speak about each other. And so today we're going to tackle this first topic of our words. And many of you... Uh, I would say probably a lot of us, most of us can probably remember a time when our exchange of words looked very different than it does today. For me, I can remember a day before the internet. How many of you can remember a day before the internet? If you can remember that and you're watching online, ironically, then uh, put an exclamation point in the chat or on Facebook or wherever you happen to be watching from. But I remember when the internet first came into play, I was like 15 years old and I was taking a typing class and, uh, and I was like... They're like, you can, you can get on this thing. It's called the information superhighway. And uh, nobody's directing traffic on this highway, so you can just jump on there and cruise around. And, and so I was like, this is awesome. So I hit a button, and it was like... <laughs> and 10 minutes later, I was on the internet. It was amazing. <laughs> Unbelievable. And it was like a whole world of information. There's so many websites. Not really. And, and some of you remember that. You're like, I remember, my kids don't remember that. 
Some of you are from, you know, Gen Z and you don't remember that. Some of you millennials don't remember that, but I'm old enough to remember that. I'm old enough to remember when the telephone was just a box on my wall. And it was like, where there was a very long coiled up cord so that you could walk anywhere in the house. Like, this was pre-cordless phone, okay? It was just really long corded phone. And so you could go anywhere you wanted to, but it was still attached as a box on the wall. Can you believe this? And some of you remember this. I remember this as a kid, the rotary phone. And you're just like, this thing's like making sparks. There's an actual box making sparks with gears. And you're like ticked off every time a guy had like three zeros in his phone number. You're like, oh my gosh, right? Zero, zero. Took 13 minutes to call my friends, you know? And here's what's wild. I don't know my own kids' phone numbers. My, my kids have cell phones. I don't know their numbers. I couldn't tell you. I had so many of my friends' numbers memorized when I was a kid because I had to dial them. There's no speed dial, right? Somebody, you missed a call from somebody, you just missed a call. That was it. You couldn't, you couldn't figure it out. And your main source of news was when somebody literally threw a newspaper onto your porch. That's how you got all your news. Unbelievable. Now, if you're sitting next to someone who's a millennial or Gen Z, just pat them on the shoulder right now. They're having a small panic attack. They're like, I cannot believe this world existed. <laughs> but here's the reality. The way that we use words over the last 30 years has drastically shifted. Let me give you a couple of truths to consider about our words. Number one, we are using more words than ever before. Now, think about this. More words than we've ever used in the past. By a lot. It's not even close. In 2020, it was estimated that people all over the world, on average, sent 306 billion emails, sent 4.5 trillion text messages, and sent 500 million tweets and watched 525 million hours of YouTube per day. You're like, that would be amazing if that was all of 2020. No, that's every day in 2020. Think about that. Every day, that's what we did as a, as a human race. It's estimated that humans around the world globally created 2.5 quintillion bytes of data per day. That's 2.5 times 10 to the 18th power. Or the way I'd always remember it, okay, 2.5 with 18 zeros per day. Now, it's, it, that's crazy. And here's what's, what's uh, so amazing about this. It's growing every year. It's not, it's not slowing down. It's not like we're like, whoa, that seems excessive. Maybe we should pull back a bit. Like, we're leaning into that. Like, it's accelerating. And studies show that since the birth of social media, humans exchanged more words in that one year. When social media was born, more words in that one year than in all of the other years in human history combined. That's crazy. And it's not slowing down. And we're using more words than we've ever used before. But here's what's really sobering to think about. We are thinking less about our words than ever before. So we're using more words, and we're thinking a lot less about them. When words were more difficult to compose, and the interaction took longer, and I had to sit down, or I had to actually dial your number, or I had to, you know, sit down and see you face to face. And my wife and I, when we were dating, uh, I lived in Chicago, and she lived here, and we were sending letters in the mail what? What is that? Who sends letters in the mail? It was more personal. And you spent time formulating your words, and we thought more about our words. And it's the difference between a letter in the mail and sending a text message, right? It's the difference between a face-to-face -face interaction and the Facebook comment section. 
And it's nobody's fault. It's just naturally what happens when you live in the age that we live in. It's kind of a byproduct, but we send words out into the world with very little effort and with no direct accountability or feedback, and it's just happening all the time, and we're just sending words all the time. And so we don't feel the weight of our words the way that we used to feel the weight of our words, which is why you've probably sent things in an email or said something in a comment or uh, you know, said something in a tweet or in a text message that you would have never said to somebody face-to-face. It's why I've seen people talk about each other on social media in ways that I could never imagine them talking to each other if they were sitting in a living room together. We're using more words than ever before, and we're thinking about them less than ever before. And here's why that matters, because a few thousand years ago, there was a guy named Solomon. And the scriptures tell us that God gave him incredible wisdom, and he took his wisdom, and he wanted to catalog it for his kids, and he wrote this thing called Proverbs. And in that, here's one of the things that he writes. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The tongue has the power of life and death. Your words have incredible weight. Your words carry the power of life and death. And isn't that true that you can speak and in a moment you can fill someone's heart or you can crush it? That's because your words have the power of life and death. Isn't it true that in just a few sentences you can bolster someone with confidence or you can cripple them with insecurity? Isn't it true that just with a few words you can give someone an incredible sense of self-worth or you can crush them with shame and worthlessness? By our words, we can draw people close and we can push people away. We can bestow dignity or we can bestow degradation. We can surround people with support or we can isolate people with opposition. Your words have the power of life and death. And that's not random. There's a reason for that. And maybe you've never stopped to think about why your words carry so much weight and why they're so powerful. But here's what it comes down to. Our words have power because God's words have power. Now think about it like this. In the creation narrative, we read about this in Genesis, and it says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God speaks, and things happen. God creates everything that there is, and he does it with a spoken word. Let there be this, let there be that, and it happens, because creation bends to God's commands. It's, it's part of the song that we sang this morning together, right? And when you speak, a hundred billion creatures catch your breath. They, and they evolve in pursuit of what you said because nature bends to the words of God. And then John, later on in his account of Jesus in his life and teachings, he writes, starts off his letter and he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and it actually came and it dwelt among us. And he's talking about Jesus and he's saying, look, it wasn't enough for God to speak. He wanted to be with us, so Jesus came into our world, and it's like God's word took on flesh and bone, and Jesus is the living, walking, breathing word of God, and he came and he lived among us because the words of God have power, and we were created in God's image, and creation bends to his words, and so when we speak, it has power. We're the only species. Animals can't do this. Animals can't envision something that doesn't exist and then work towards its creation and communicate ideas and words to accomplish that. We're the only ones that can do that because human beings are created in the image of God. And so our words have power. Our words can speak life and death. It's why some of your best memories are some of the words that were spoken to you at some point in your life. It's why some of your deepest wounds are some of the words that were spoken to you at some point in your life. It's why some of your deepest regrets are some of the words that escaped your lips to someone else. Because our words, 
our tongue carries the power of life and death. And our words carry so much weight to them that you may not be able to remember what someone said to you five minutes ago, but you remember what someone said to you five years ago. Depending on the context and depending on how that impacted you, and because we are using more words than ever before, and because we're thinking less about them than ever before, we have allowed ourselves to develop a dangerous habit that has the potential to undermine our ability to be known for, as a church, what we should be known for. And several years ago, the Harvard Business Review conducted a, uh, a study. They, they actually put out an article that responded to a multiple studies that had been done across different sociological uh, demographics. And so there were studies that were done that said, okay, how many positive interactions do people need in relation to negative interactions? How many positive life-giving words do people need versus negative words to be healthy and to be productive. And, and the first one to study this was a guy named Dr. John Gottman. And uh, he's written a book that's very insightful, studied marriage for 30 years. And he, he has a marriage lab where he watches people interact in marriage. And then he can assess based on the way that they treat each other and their interactions, like, where can I help you? But with 94% accuracy can determine if somebody is unhealthy and on the, on the road to divorce or if they're healthy with 94% accuracy, and it all based on a ratio of positive to negative words. And he came to the conclusion after studying this for decades that the ratio needs to be five positive words for every one negative word. Five positive words, five positive interactions for every one negative. Now, some of you are like this, like, that, that was worth the price of admission. If I go home and do, like, that would change your marriage right there. Like, you're like, that's a mic drop moment, let's close in prayer. But that's just one area. Dr. John Gottman put that information out, and what happened is people started studying workplace dynamics, and they came to the exact same conclusion. They said, nope, he got it right. It's five positive interactions for every one negative interaction, that those are the healthiest workplace teams, that those are the healthiest workplace relationships, and they consequently end up becoming the most productive workplaces. And then child sociologists started studying parenting, and they said, yep, we can confirm that, that it's five positive life-giving words for every one negative word. And they didn't say you should never have a negative word because kids need boundaries and the kids need discipline and correction, but they said it's important that kids grow up in a climate of life-giving words, and the ratio is five to one. And it's amazing. There's no faith element attached to these things. They're simply observations about how human beings interact with one another. And here's the really kind of sobering thought. Those are the best marriages. Those are the, those are the best environments for kids. Those are the, the most successful teams. The average American lives in a ratio of three negative to one positive. That's just the average. That's where most of us tend to live, which, if I'm being honest, makes me feel a lot better about me. Because... I look back at the last year, and I don't know that I've mastered five. Like, I can tell you I am not clipping along at a five-to-one ratio. I look, at, I look at just this last 18 months and the pressure that put on us relationally and the pressure that put on us with the different people and the different spheres and the different relationships. And I, Man, I wish I, was, I wish I could tell you, yeah, five-to-one, I'm killing it. But you open Twitter and it feels like somebody backed up a dump truck of toxicity and just... Dropped it right there. And you, you open up a community board on Facebook and you're just like, this is more entertaining than reality TV, right? And you're popping some popcorn and you're just like reading the comment section. It's amazing. Holy cow. I can't believe he said that. You, get a, you go on your neighborhood Facebook page and somebody's like, hey, neighbor, we need to talk about your dog. 
You're like, oh, great. And then they're like, and don't even get me started on your garbage cans. That's going to be in another post. You're going to love the comments. It's going to be great. <laughs> and this is all before the pandemic, right? How many of you would say, you know what? There's been an overwhelming surge of positivity in the last 18 months. Yeah, nobody. We have normalized a way of talking to each other that, at the very least, is keeping us from thriving. We've normalized a way of talking to each other that is actually keeping us mediocre in our marriage, mediocre in our parenting, mediocre in the workplace. It's keeping us divided in our neighborhoods, divided in our community. Uh, We've normalized a way of talking to each other that, honestly, is leading to a lot more insecurity than confidence. It's leading to a lot more hurt than healing. It's leading to a lot more regret than fond memories. We've normalized a way of talking to each other that's leading to a more divided and less unified community. And for followers of Jesus, we've normalized a way of talking to each other that has kept us from being known for what Jesus said we should be known for. We've normalized a way of talking that has diminished our influence in the lives of people because Jesus said, this is how people will know that you're my disciples, is how well you love each other. And we haven't always done a great job of doing that. And we will never be known for what we should be known for if we can't learn to deal with our words. And so, in the first century, there's this guy named Paul. And he comes along and he has this encounter with Jesus and Jesus changes his life. And we said this uh, last week that this is often what happens. Uh, Almost never does somebody interact with Jesus and encounter Jesus and their life isn't changed. And Paul's life has changed. And he starts to start churches all over the Roman Empire. And then he's writing letters back to these churches. And if you could summarize all of Paul's letters, I mean, this is is a, a, a bit of an oversimplification, but this is really what his mission was. It's what it came down to. Hey, Jesus said to love others the way that God, the way that he's loved us. And that that's how the world would know that we're, we're followers of his. And so we need to love others the way that Jesus has loved us. And so here's what that looks like in your context. That's basically what his letters were. Here's what that means. That one command of Jesus that we're supposed to do really well, here's how you do that. Here's how that affects your behavior. Here's how that affects your relationships and your choices and your words and all these things. And he's speaking, he's writing to a church in Ephesus that he had started. And he writes this, do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. There's two categories of words that Paul addresses. And the first he says is unwholesome talk, which translated really means um, rotting or decaying talk. Don't use words, Paul would say, that get lodged in someone's heart and causes them rot or decay. But instead, and then he contrasts that, and he said, use words that are helpful. Use words that build up. Let your words be a building block that become a foundation for other people's lives. And it's interesting. He's talking about a word ratio. He says, don't, don't do this. Instead, do this. He, before anybody studied it, Paul is talking about a word ratio. And I love it. He doesn't say, don't let any unwholesome talk come to your mind, because that would be impossible, because we all have words that in the heat of the moment come into our mind. Some of them actually get lodged right here. They're in the back of our throat, and they're ready. They're ready. They're like, samey, samey, samey. We got this. You're like, no, I can't do it. And some of us are like, absolutely. <laughs> You're like, that was a zinger. That felt amazing. And the contrast, according to Paul, is we actually need to be more intentional about holding back words that are unwholesome, words that are, cause rot and decay. And uh, on the contrast of that, we actually need to be more intentional about pushing out those words that actually build others up. Because sometimes we also have words and thoughts that come to our mind and we go, should I tell that to that person? Should I say that to that person? And you should. 
because it would actually help them. It would encourage them. But you go, oh, that feels too emotional. That feels too mushy. I don't want to be too forward. And Paul goes, look, the, th- the stuff that comes in your mind and it's sitting there and it's ready to be launched and you know it's going to cause rot and decay, hold that in. But the stuff that's there that you know can build others up, man, you get that out. You be intentional about encouraging other people. Well, how do we know which is which? Well, Paul says it's according to their needs. Whatever it will build them up, which is a little unnatural because when I'm, not, when I'm talking, I'm not always thinking about their needs. I'm thinking about my needs. And when I'm talking, I'm not always thinking about their benefit. I'm thinking about my benefit. And Paul says, look, don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but rather whatever will build them up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. What if before I shot off my mouth, And what if, before we open our mouth, before we react, before we respond, what if I just ask this simple question? What words do they need to hear in order to build them up? What words do they need to hear in order to be uplifted? What words do they need to hear in order to be encouraged? What would benefit them? And sometimes you're like, man, I just, the best I can do at this point is holding back the negative. Then hold back the negative. Paul says, start there. And it doesn't mean you have to agree on everything. It just means love requires that you ask, what is good for them before you speak? And what if you actually have something good and positive to say? Be intentional and say it. Don't hold that back. We have been given the power of words for not our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And you have a ratio right now. I have a ratio right now. Every one of us every day has a ratio, and sometimes it changes and shifts, but all of us every day have a ratio of positive words and negative words. And if we just let whatever comes into our minds come firing out of our mouths, I have pretty good research that will back up that we're probably going to live in that three to one negative versus positive zone. And your life doesn't have to look that way. And if you're a follower of Jesus, your life can't look that way. It just can't because that is not who we are because that's not who Jesus is. And if we're marked by Jesus, it starts with our words and that's not the best for anybody and it doesn't bring the best out of anybody. And think for just a moment about the words that Jesus uses towards you. If you've had an encounter with Jesus, if you've experienced his grace and his love in your life, what are the words that Jesus speaks towards you? Words of hope, words of grace, words of forgiveness, words of second chances, words of restoration, words of healing, words of love. And we need to have a countercultural filter on our mouths that causes a countercultural reaction in our lives so that we can get busy making the church known for what the church should be known for, how well we love. So what if we started to change our ratio. What if every single one of us just owned our ratio and said, I'm going to start to change that ratio for my family, for my marriage, for my neighborhood, for my kids' school, for uh, my community, for my workplace. I'm going to start to change that ratio. Let me give you, uh, real quickly, three simple filters that can help you do that. Number one, have I stopped to listen? I think that's a great filter. Before I talk, have I stopped to listen? And I'm convinced that if we would start from a position of listening and learning and trying to understand somebody else's point of view, we would probably do a lot less talking. And, and even when we do speak, our words would be informed and we would be able to speak in a way that people would be able to listen. And by the way, that's not my idea. That comes from James, the brother of Jesus, who became a follower of Jesus, and he wrote this. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. 
And I sincerely believe that there would be a lot less anger in our world if we would be quick to listen and slow to speak. That if we would take the time to listen and understand where other people are coming from, it doesn't mean we would agree with them, but at least we would see them the way that God sees them. We'd be able to form our response more thoughtfully. So before you say what's burning in your mind to say, have you taken the time to listen where somebody else is coming from? Secondly, are my motives pure? Why do I feel the need to say whatever I'm about to say right now, right? Filtering your words does not mean that you don't speak the truth. And sometimes this gets confusing. You go, okay, so only say things that will benefit them, only say things that will build them up. But man, sometimes I got to have a tough conversation with somebody. Are you saying we shouldn't stand up for things? Are you saying we shouldn't speak the truth? No, what I'm saying is that Jesus spoke the truth all the time, but we're told over and over again that it was truth and grace, that it was truth and love, that he balanced those things. He spoke the truth, but he spoke grace and truth. And I think far too often we want to speak the truth because it makes us feel good and it makes us feel like we took a stand on something and we end up weaponizing the truth for our own sense of pride. And for far too long, what we've done is we've taken the truth and we've clobbered somebody with it. And I can tell you, the scriptures work so much better as a mirror than as a set of binoculars. They work so much better when we're using them to look at our lives than to look at the lives of other people. And sometimes when you have to have a difficult conversation, instead of clobbering somebody, and it doesn't matter how right you are, you can be armed to the teeth with truth and still not love someone well because of your motive. If you're clobbering somebody with the truth and there's no grace and there's no love, then no matter how true your truth is, they're not going to hear it. And more importantly, they will not feel loved by you. And so, if your words do not build up and benefit those who hear them, no matter how true they are, if you're using them to clobber somebody, that is not loving. Paul would say this in Ephesians 4, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. Before we spew whatever it is that we're about to with our words, ask yourself, why do I feel the need to say this? And then there are so many things that I say that I, I realize that was fueled by my own insecurities. I said that because I wanted to be viewed in a, different, in a specific light. I said that because I wanted to be seen as better than I actually am. And if I'm not careful about my motivation, I will use my words in the heat of a moment to bring someone down in an effort to build myself up. So here's a great filter. What's my motive? Are my motives pure? Have I taken the time to listen? And are my motives pure? And then here's the third one. How's my tone? How's my tone? If you've done those first two and you're ready to speak, sometimes our emotions get the best of us, but we speak the truth in love. We do not speak the truth in sarcasm or in anger or in reaction. And sometimes it's not what you say, but how you say it. In Proverbs, Solomon writes this, a gentle answer deflects anger, but harsh words make tempers flare. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge appealing, but the mouth of the fool belches foolishness. Uh, it's such a visual, right? It's like when your kids are at the dinner table and one of them's just like, Bleh. and they're always just like, oh, pardon me, right? Or they're like, that's a good one. <laughs> okay, that's me. <laughs> Confession. But what is that? It's like, it's like it was there and I just couldn't hold it back. And, and Solomon says that for people who build up foolish words, it's like it just comes out. It just belches it out. But 
Oftentimes, it's not what we say, it's how we say it. It's the tone. And if you have words that you feel need to be said and it will benefit the listener, then spend some time planning how you're going to say it and put your mind in gear before you put your mouth in gear. And here's what I'm asking you to consider today as we close. Would you think about all the arenas of your life? Just take a minute and think about this. Workplace, family relationships, extended family relationships, neighborhood, neighborhood association. <laughs> Those are two different things. Uh, You've got, uh, what, marriage relationship, relationship with your kids, relationship with extended family, all these different arenas of your life. Now, I'm just going to ask you to pick one. Pick one arena of your life. And now I want you to pick one relationship in that one arena of your life. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to work on five to one ratio, positive to negative. Don't let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but instead only say what is helpful to build others up according to their needs so that they may benefit. And pick one relationship in that one arena of your life and see if you can do that and put that into practice. And just do that for the next week, for the next two weeks. See if you can do that through this series over the next couple of weeks and see if it doesn't make a difference in that one area and see if that doesn't bleed its way into your other relationships. And maybe as you're sitting here, you're already thinking about that person. You're already thinking about that one person in that one arena and you've already come to mind for you. What if we all started doing that this week with one person in one arena? What if the several hundred of us who attended these services today and who are watching online and participating in microsites and all these things and who caught it later on in the week, what if every single one of us did that with one relationship in one arena of our life. That would be several hundred people just this week that would be impacted in a significant way. And here's why. Because you have no idea what a word from you could do. When I look back at my life, there are specific things that certain people said to me along the way that I don't think I would be standing here today if it wasn't for that conversation, this conversation. And I could go back to those people and be like, you remember when we talked about that? And they'd be like, no. And I don't, what are you talking? I don't remember that at all, but I remember it. You have no idea what a positive word from you could do. You don't know what hangs in the balance of your decision to say, I'm going to encourage someone today. You don't know what they're going through. You don't know what they've got going on. You don't know what they're facing. And it would be nice, wouldn't it, if everybody just had it plastered everywhere so you could know? That'd be a, so lot, a lot easier. It's like how often I'm, I'm driving down the road and it's just like, oh man, I'm frustrated by the person in front of me or I'm frustrated by the person trying to merge or whatever. But man, if they have a student driver sticker on the back, I give so much more grace. It's like, oh yeah, no, no worries. What if we all had a student driver sticker on our forehead? It just said, hey, here's what I'm going through right now. We would all show each other a lot more grace with our words, wouldn't we? But you don't know what that person's going through. You don't know what hangs in the balance of a positive word from you. And you may change the trajectory of somebody's life and not even know it. And they might come back 20 years later and go, do you remember when you said that to me? It changed everything for me. And you're like, no. Because you don't know what hangs in the balance. You don't know what a word from you could do. Final thought. When we build others up, we point others up. When we build others up, we point others up. This isn't just what successful and positive teams do and relationships look like. This is what God looks like. When God speaks, things come to life. So when we speak as a reflection of who God is, we speak life to people. We point people to the one who speaks life to us. And the people who are followers of Jesus, we are called to be an extension of who God is in our community and in our world. And people who are looking to discover what God is like should discover what God is like through their encounters with us through their interactions with us. So let's use words as followers of Jesus to accurately reflect the love of our Heavenly Father who spoke words of life into us.
And for those of you who are here in the room, those of you who are watching online, checking it out later this week, maybe you'd say this, you know what, I've never said yes to Jesus. Well, here's what you need to know. God wasn't content to simply speak words of life and bring you to life. God also wanted to share in life with you. At at a At the right time in human history, all of us have experienced brokenness, brokenness between us and God, brokenness between us and each other. It's why everything is both beautiful and messy, and it's this contrast, and it's this paradox, and it's it's why everything is the way that it is. There's so much brokenness in our world, and yet, in the midst of so much brokenness, we experience so much beauty, and we we experience experience so much good. And so God said, you know what? I'm not content to just speak words of life and, and allow people to live and come to life, but I actually want to be with them. And so the scriptures tell us at the right time in human history, God sent Jesus into the world. The word became flesh and lived among us. He experienced what we experienced and he shared in our lives and shared in our love and then showed us what God is like and allowed himself to be put to death. And in his final words, as he was dying, his final dying words were, Father, forgive them. Even in his last words, he's pointing us to the God who created you and who loves you and wants to forgive you of anything in your past and help restore any brokenness that you've experienced. And then, according to multiple eyewitnesses, he rose from the dead. And that means death is not the end. There's more to this life than this life. And you and I have been invited to be a part of God's family. And if you've never said yes to that invitation, I want to invite you. You've been invited by the creator of the universe. He created you. He loves you. He speaks words of grace and hope and forgiveness to you. And all he asks is that you say yes, that you put your trust in him. And if you'd like to say yes, just agree with this prayer as we close. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you. And I thank you that you've never walked away from me. And I pray, adopt me into your family. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And help me to put my trust in you, to follow you as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, I pray for every single one of us here today. We all have so many people that we interact with in so many different ways. And oftentimes our words get the best of us. We are using more than ever before and thinking less about them. So I pray, may we be a church. May we be individuals collectively who make up the church. May we be a group of people who love as Jesus has loved us. And may we think through our tone and our motives. May we, may we learn to listen and understand before we speak. May we be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to respond. And in doing that, may we be a reflection of the one who has loved us so well. May we love others as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.